Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Thank you, Jesus. If you were to hold your place there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to use this passage as a springboard into the, the text that we'll spend most of our time considering today. Just for your information, it will be in, from the majority of our time, we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 12. But I do want to look a little bit at these words that we just read and considered from chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. But just for a little bit of background, this is actually not the second letter that Paul wrote to, to the church in Corinth. It was at least the third letter. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul writes, as I wrote to you in my previous letter, not to associate with such sorts of people. And in that context, he was talking about, quote-unquote, believers, or a believer who was part of their fellowship, who was claiming to be a Christian, but who was practicing, and Paul put it like this way, he was practicing such a sin that not even the pagans, not even the Gentiles found it acceptable amongst themselves. And the sin that Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians um, was actually a young man, in the way that Paul writes it, a, a man who had his father's wife. So there was an affair that was, that was taking place. We don't get all the details of it, but there was an affair that was taking place between a man and his stepmom. And, it, and it, at best, the church was at least being condoning towards it. They were, they, were, they were accepting of it. They were allowing it, or at least tolerating it. But at worst, some, some scholars or theologians suggest that there were, in fact, people in the Corinthian church who were welcoming it. And we're celebrating such a practice. It's hard to imagine how that could have been so. And so Paul, when he writes his first letter to the church in Corinth, and we don't really have the contents of that or whatever letter he refers to, but he had addressed a type of sin already. And then in 1 Corinthians, which is at least the second letter that he wrote, he, he's addressing an immature church who needed practical help in order to walk out their faith in a way that would be useful for the kingdom of heaven. And, and so that's why we get all of the content that we get from 1 Corinthians. We get a lot of doctrine. We get a lot of really good theology. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we get the body of Christ. This was, uh, we learned that the, the church in Corinth was a church that was probably competitive. And they would practice certain, certain kinds of spiritual gifts in order to appear more spiritual or more holy or more effective for the faith. And so Paul gets into the dialogue about spiritual gifts and the body of Christ and how yes, Christ is the head of the body, but each part of the body serves a different function. But each function is, a, is desperately necessary and needed in order for the body to function properly. And so as it stands, though there's one body, there's many parts. So fulfill the function that God's given you to, to the fullness of your ability with the power and help of the Holy Spirit in order to effectively communicate and share the gospel and then he gets into chapter 13 about the, the, the better, the more excellent way, and it's the way of love. He says, yeah, like if you believe all of the right things, if you have knowledge, if you, if you say all the right things and you're eloquent in your speech and you have all these incredible spiritual gifts, but you do it all without love, it's meaningless, it's pointless. So he gives them the, the practicality of, yes, this is how we act, but this is the manner the hard attitude that we ought to have when we're acting accordingly. And then in chapter 14, he gets into specific examples of, of two spiritual gifts, how they are practically, you can, they can be used or misused in the context of the body of Christ. And so, it, like I said, it's a very practical book for a church that needed very practical help. But then in 2 Corinthians, which is what we just heard from that Jesus read for us, uh, many people refer to this letter, 2 Corinthians, is Paul's personal testimony of suffering. He starts the book in chapter 1 talking about comfort and affliction, saying that the only reason why the Lord would ever allow us to go through any kind of affliction is so that we can be comforted through our affliction, so that when we encounter others who are going through a similar kind of affliction, 
The same comfort that we were comforted with, we could extend to others to help them when they're going through their affliction. And then he gets into, later in this chapter, all sorts of things that he struggled with. How he had a thorn in his flesh. We'll talk about that more a little later. How he, was, he, he suffered all of these different things during his ministry. He was, he was whipped twice. The 40 minus 1 lashes that, he, that Jesus endured before he went to the cross. Paul had to go through that twice. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He knew what it meant, as we just read, to be perplexed and crushed and abandoned. He knew what it meant to be hungry and cold and naked. He knew what it meant to be pursued by people who were seeking to kill him. In fact, we can read about it throughout the whole book of Acts, but when he was ministering to the churches in Galatia, the Jewish, the, the circumcision party, there are these Jews who were chasing him to the, around to these three different churches in Derb and Lystra and Iconium, and, and, and as they were pursuing him, they, they, they got a hold of him, and they dragged him outside the city after having stoned him, and most people believe that he was actually dead. And they dragged his body outside the city, and then he gets back up. And I, what I would have done in that situation is said, you know what, I'm going to go back home. I'm going I'm to go back to, to Jerusalem. I'm going to go back to Antioch. I'm, I'm, I'm tapping out. That was brutal. And everyone would be like, yeah, we get it, man. Totally get it. But what he did is he kept on going. He's like, all right, let's go to Ephesus and Thessalonica. And let's go to Corinth and we'll make, make our way back to make our way back to Antioch, and then we'll go out again. We'll go even further, and then we'll make our way back again, and I'm going to get arrested, but it's purposeful because I need to make it to Rome so that I can minister to the people who are in Rome. And so this is, as Paul is, is, is sharing his personal testimony of suffering, he says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. And as we've already considered, Paul was an expert in what it meant for the outer self to waste away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. And there's been at least twice in my life, two conversations that I've had with two different people um, over you know, the word of God and they're going through hard circumstances. And we went to this verse in verse 17. There's been at least two circumstances where I brought up this verse with, to someone and they took it with a lot of offense. And I, I'm by no means, I am by no means the perfect minister, so I'm sure I could have been more gentle in the way that I brought up the verse. But for all intents and purposes, when we read this, and we read about the hardest things that we've had to struggle with, and we read verse 17, and Paul says, this light and momentary affliction, that can come across a little insensitive. But we've considered this context. Think about the person who's writing this, the one who's surely suffered more than probably any of us in this room and many people who have ever lived. He describes his affliction as just light and just momentary. As a way of preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And by comparison, there is none. The eternal weight of glory beyond all Comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I remember the first time that I heard this, I probably heard this verse a lot growing up. I grew up like a lot of you in the church, and I probably just ignored it for most of my life. But then I remember the first time that I was really listening, I was probably in middle school, and um, maybe it was my youth pastor, or my Sunday school teacher at First Baptist Church. I don't really remember, but they said, they said uh, that the don't look at the things that are seen, but look at the things that are unseen. And I thought, what in the world does that even mean? That's literally not even possible. That's such a paradox. I can't, how can I actually look at something that cannot be seen? But even right now, as I'm, as I'm giving this sermon and as I say all of this, all of you are thinking certain things right now. Hopefully, you're thinking things in response to what I'm preaching. I know, and I don't blame you, I know a lot of you are thinking about what you're about to have for lunch here in a few minutes, and some of you are like, man, Drew, you're crushing it right now. You bring it, bro. This is the best sermon I've ever. I'm just kidding. I'm sure none of you are thinking that. Some of you might be uh, doing what I do a lot when Pastor Mike preaches, and he makes a point that just sort of rattles my brain, and I end up thinking about that thing for like five minutes, and I get off on a tangent, and then when I kind of check back in, I, I have to figure out where he is now because he's talking about something, and I'm like, oh, I missed it. I got distracted. But as, as it stands, we're all 
thinking things. We're, see, none of us are only physical beings. We are multifaceted in nature. We've made this point a lot. This point has been made a lot from this pulpit. We have minds that can reason. We have hearts that feel. We have souls and we have a spirit, things that can interact with God or that can be dead in sin. We are not simply just physical beings. And so when Paul is telling us and telling the church in Corinth to not just look to the things that are seen because it's transient, it's here and now, but to look to the things that are unseen, what he's admonishing us to do, what, he's, what he was admonishing the church in Corinth to do is to use their mind to think about things that are from scripture, that pertain to the word of God, that pertain to eternity. To use their, their hearts, their emotions, to use all of the different ways that they had been made in God's image and all the different ways that they could practice glorifying God. They were called to, to, to focus on things that would bear fruit, that would echo in eternity. There's a lot of really good things, quote unquote good, we use that word a lot, and we misuse that word a lot. God alone is good, but operationally defined the word good. We know what the word good means. We use it a lot in our world. And so there's a lot of good things that happen in this world. There's a lot of horrible things too, but there are a lot of good things that happen in this world. Like when you know, billionaires give hundreds of millions of dollars to humanitarian efforts all over the world, that's good. No one would look at that and be like, oh, that's a horrible thing that, that happened. No, like that's a, that's a good thing. But it's transient. It's here, and the benefits are now. And in many of those cases, maybe it gives someone a meal for a day, but the next day they're looking for another one. It lasts today, but it's gone tomorrow. It lasts in this life, but it doesn't echo in eternity. So instead of just focusing on the things that we see, Paul is saying, hey, Corinthian churches, you're so tied up in appeasing people and appearing a certain way spiritually and and, and not even confronting a brother who's in sin because maybe you don't want to rock the boat too much. You're so focused on the things that are right here and right now, and that's transient. That's going to pass away. Have a heart, have a mind, have an attitude that focuses on eternity. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. If you would turn your Bibles uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Veto and I, along with our son Mateo and some friends, went up to Rio Doso this last week. We try to do that every year just to kind of get out of uh, the normal rhythm and, and rest a little bit. But uh, early, one, I'm kind of putting Mike, Pastor Mike, on the spot a little bit here. But I, I was planning on preaching out of the next passage that we were supposed to go over in John. As many of you know, we've been going through the Gospel of John. And I mean, I'm not going to lie, I hadn't done a whole lot of preparation, but I'd done a little bit of preparation. And then Mike calls me earlier, earlier this week, and he's like, hey, Drew, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Pastor Mike. He's like, hey, so instead of John this week, why don't, you just, why don't you just preach something that'll be really good for New Year, for the New Year? I'm like, and I, my, I'm like, you know, the whole right brain, left brain thing? Like, I don't even remember, like, the right, which part is right brain and which part is left brain. Like, that's how, that's how thick I can be, but... I'm not very good at just being told, like, hey, teach on, like, a topic. Just pick, pick something. I'm like, ah. I just, I kind of get in my head a little bit. And so that, that's what I had to do this last week. I know all of you feel sorry for me. And when I, was, when I was laying in bed, I think it was on Wednesday morning, the Lord brought, I was praying, and the Lord brought 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8 to my mind. And um, that's why we're talking about 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 12. But let's read this. In verse 6, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, if you put these things, everyone say these things. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Being trained, everyone say trained, in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. And I'll do this one more time. Rather, everyone say trained. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I'm a little context about the book of, of 1 Timothy. Really, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are all three books that we call the pastoral letters, the pastoral epistles. They're, they're letters that Paul wrote First and Second Timothy to Timothy, and then Titus to Titus. Um, for Timothy, he wrote those letters to help him pastor the church that he was overseeing in Ephesus. 
And for Titus, it was to give him instructions on how to oversee and pastor the churches that he was overseeing in, the, in, the, in, in Crete, in the Cretan churches in that area, the Mediterranean world. And so when we read these three books, first and second Timothy and Titus, it's important that we understand the context. This is Paul not speaking to a bunch of people, but speaking to Timothy, giving him instructions on how to lead his church. And I remember um, when the first time that the, the whole concept of the pastoral letters was given to me, I think I was in high school, and it was for sure a part of my life when I did not care at all about what, whatever was being preached on Sunday. And I think the pastor made the point, like, these are pastoral letters. It's Paul telling Timothy, so it's like for a pastor. And I was like, cool. I don't have to listen to this. I'm just going to check out because it has nothing to do with me. And, and um, you know, we, we went through this a few years ago with our students in our student ministry. And what's really great about these letters is that what we see, and we'll talk about this more. I'll probably make this point a couple of times in a different light, that Paul is giving Timothy instructions on how to teach and lead his church. But in the context of this book, he keeps saying all sorts of commandments to him, giving him all sorts of imperative charges to follow. Hey, Timothy, do this. Go make, you know, uh, what you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, find faithful men who will be faithful to teach others as well. And there's all sorts of promises. Pursue righteousness, faith, hope, and love. Together are those who call upon the name of the Lord from a pure heart. There's all sorts of charges. And so when you have these, you know, I had you guys say these things earlier, all of these things that Paul is, is telling Timothy to put before his congregation, look, look ahead at, at chapter 11, command and teach these things. Everyone say it again, these things. Command and teach these things. All of these things are the things that Paul was, was telling Timothy to do. And so yes, though the context of these letters are they are pastoral in nature, all of the directives, all of the commands, all of the information that we get from it was just supposed to be relayed to his congregation. And so as we read it today, and I'm sure I didn't have to convince many, many of you of this, maybe it was just me imposing my 16-year-old brain on you guys, but, but as we read these commands and these imperatives, all of these things are for us. Every single one of these things, whether you're a pastor or anything else. All of these things are for us. Timothy just had the responsibility of teaching it and putting it before his congregation to do something about it. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Look at verse 7 and 8 with me. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, Rather, train yourself for godliness. And what I find interesting about uh, this passage, and just as we've already said, First uh, and Second Timothy, the, the, the most, the, 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 the command that, that Paul gives Timothy more than anything else is somehow synonymous or related to the idea of teaching or preaching the word. That's, that's the thing that he says more than anything else about what Timothy is supposed to do is teaching and preaching the word of God. So this is a great these are great books, obviously, for people who aspire to be teachers of God's words. There's a lot of commands about that in here. And so in verse 7, he says, instead of having you know, something to do with these irreverent and silly myths, all these things, that if you look, go up and look at verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and false teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And so we see all these things that that we can get kind of hung up on when it comes to the faith. There's a lot of different topics or doctrines or philosophies that we tend to get hung up on. And then also in, in the world, there's all sorts of philosophies and religious ideas and, and ways of thinking that we definitely can get hung up on. And that Paul is telling Timothy, hey, don't, don't get so caught and tied up into those things. Don't let your focus be in those things, but rather train yourself for godliness. And the context is, be trained in the word of God. And let that contextualize the way that you converse with all of these things that the world throws at you. We have Caleb Harrelson and his wife with us today. They run a ministry where, where they, they aim to have all sorts of conversations about all sorts of things going on in the world. But I've talked with Caleb enough to know that he, he understands, and all of us ought to understand this, that the foundation comes that we have a proper understanding of the gospel 
and a belief that the word of God is true. It's inerrant. It's the only thing that will ever give us everything that we need for any and every situation. And so that can contextualize all the conversations that we have with people. And so we root ourselves in the word of God. This word train, I love this, I think this is hilarious, but the word train that Paul uses right here in in, uh, the verb in verse six and then in, or in verse seven rather, and then in verse eight, bodily training, that's the noun form of it. The verb is humnazo and then the the noun is humnazia, which is where we get our English word gymnasium from. And what I love about this word is that it means literally, the verb of it literally means to exercise naked. I love that. I think it's hilarious. And the, the way that, the way that um, the context of this, maybe, if you, maybe you, you guys watched the most recent Olympic Games, but the Olympics have a rich history going all the way back to the Roman Empire. And the way that the athletes used to train in, in, in the games, Olympic athletes, gladiators, the way that these people used to train is that they would strip down to either being just naked or maybe have like some sort of a little loincloth to cover their privates. And that's, that's how they would exercise. They didn't, want, they didn't want the long flowing clothes that were common to the time to, to trip them up or to you know, get snagged somewhere. And so they needed to strip off things so that they could effectively train without being encumbered by all of the trappings and garb that would have, that would have made their training less effective. I, kinda, I wanted to make all of you say exercise naked, but I'm not gonna do that. So, <laughs> and I also, I don't, nobody should do that either, right? Um, but it really does draw us to Hebrews chapter 12, where Paul, or sorry, the writer of Hebrews, we don't, there's, there's a lot of debate. We don't really know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but the, the author of Hebrews wrote, since therefore we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. The language that's used in, in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12 is, it's a picture of, of a big arena filled with people that are watching some sort of games that are happening in the middle. It's kind of like the Olympics. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us cast off or lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles. Let us derobe ourselves of all these things that trip us up and run with race the endurance, run, run the race with endurance, the race marked out before us. Keeping our, and we sang about this, the author and perfecter of our faith, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author, the finisher, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scored in the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. If you jump ahead to verse 16 in 1 Timothy chapter 4, look what Look what Paul tells Timothy to do. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Keep a close watch on yourself. That would, that would constitute keeping a close watch and being careful about your conduct, what you do. And then also keep a close watch on your teaching, your doctrine, what you say and how you communicate it. I mean, literally, there's, this is a concept that all of us Understand, we've all, it's all been explained to us. There's literally thousands and at least hundreds of cliches and sayings that go with this idea. Um, man, that dog has a big bark, but no. Right. Or man, he's a, you know, be, be, a, be not only a, a hearer, but a, a doer. Man, he, he talks the talk, but is he gonna... This is exactly what Paul is getting at with Timothy when he says these words to him. And, and, and just to say this, I am not at all putting myself on a pedestal to say that this is where I have arrived in my spiritual journey pursuing the Lord. And so as I preach this, this is for me, it's for all of us. But the most detrimental thing for the church and in the life of believers is when we say and believe and talk about things the right way but we live lives that don't accord with what it is we are saying that we believe in. I would argue that that is the most detrimental thing in the life of believers and certainly to the furthering of his, to the furthering of his church and the spreading of his kingdom. So Paul is telling Timothy, hey, Timothy, keep a close watch. You better, you better make sure that what you're saying is accurate. And if you're, going to, if you're going to open your mouth to teach the word of God to the people that are coming to hear you teach, you better be sure that what you're speaking is the truth and that it's rooted and founded in the word of God. 
But please, Timothy, please do not be guilty of doing that well, but then turning around and then living a life that does not accord with what you just said. And by the way, Timothy, as your conduct and as your speech line up with each other, teach your church to do these things as well. This is for all of us in here. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So we will never be able to, to properly and effectively share the gospel, uh, to, to, to minister to somebody, to really, in, in any sort of way, eternally impact someone's life without speaking the truth of the gospel. You're like, well, I'm not a, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a, I don't have the spiritual gift of teaching. and I'm not like a Timothy or a Pastor Mike. I'm not... I don't got to preach. This doesn't pertain to me. No, you have a voice and you were called to glorify the Lord with it. And the most, the best way that you can glorify the God, the God, the best way that you can glorify God in the world is by sharing the gospel with people. hundred percent. That's the best way that we, that we can glorify God in a public sort of way is by sharing the gospel with people. The best way that the church glorifies God is we're doing it right now is worshiping him. But the best way that we glorify God in the world is by sharing the gospel. That's the only way that people can be saved. That's the only way that our conduct and our speech, we can really, we can bear fruit that has any sort of eternal impact. So we need to do it. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly miss. Rather, train yourselves, exercise naked for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and for the future. And so this time of year, I'm sure many of you have already done this. Maybe, maybe uh, some of you are still waiting. Maybe some of you are like, you know what, I really want to really hear the message at church this weekend before I make my New Year resolutions because I'm trying to be spiritual and godly about it. And if that's you, it's awesome, great. Um, but for me, um, my, New Year, my New Year resolutions haven't always been the most... Uh, Appropriate, you know, as far as what, when it comes to, to trying to honor God. I remember my senior year in high school, my, my plan, I, I was, I was going to go to Baylor University. I knew, and I what? I knew I was going to Baylor University. And I was like, okay, so after I graduate from high school, I'm going to go to Baylor. And I, I'm through my first semester, my senior year, I got a new year now. You know what would be awesome? If I could just get like jacked before I go to college. And so this, this year, starting in January, all the way up to like August, whenever I have to go to Waco to start school, I'm going to work out every single day. So I got a membership at EP Fitness, and I think New Year's, New Year's Eve was like on a Friday or something, and so I was like, well, I'm not going to work out on a Saturday, and I, and I, can't, go to, I can't go to the gym on Sunday, so I'll just I'll wait till that Monday, you know, and so here's my plan. I was like, okay, I played golf in high school, so we practiced after school, so I was like, so the only time I could work out was before school, and so my plan was every morning I'm going to wake up and I'm going to go to the gym at 4.30 in the morning. That was my plan, and like I had never, ever worked out consistently in my life. I'd never done that before, and I was like, I'm going to start every day at 4.30, and so, uh, you know, Saturday, Sunday, and then like the third on Monday comes around. I woke up at about eight in the morning and I was like, okay, well, maybe not today. I'll start next week once I'm back in school and I kind of get a good routine. Go. I think, and I, had, I paid for that membership for two years because I forgot about it. I think I went to that gym like a grand total of four and a half times, maybe. And so my, uh, my attitude and relationship with New Year's resolutions have kind of been like a hate-love relationship. When I, when I don't do them well, I kind of I rag on the whole idea. I'm like, well, it's just, a, it's just like a, this cultural you know, phenomenon. It's, people don't really mean it. It's, just, it's so vain. Who cares? New Year's resolution. Yeah, it's so dumb. Who cares? That, that was my attitude towards it. But if I did it well, then I'd be like, wow, like I'm, I was able to reach my goal this year. It's so amazing. And Something that, that we've, we've tried to do, Veto and I've tried to do this, and we do this with our pastors and elders as well to be a little bit more intentional. We do set some goals to kind of, we kind of take tabs on those throughout the year and see where we're at in different areas. But for the most part, at least in my experience, my New Year's resolutions have always been a little bit more egocentric. And don't, don't get me wrong, obviously, like, when you're making a goal for yourself, there should be goals that, that will pertain to yourself that, that makes sense. But 
we tend to really only gear our, our hearts and minds to focus on things that are going to be of benefit to us, and usually to us only. But what's interesting about this passage, and if you'll give me just a little bit of time to talk about this topic that we see in Scripture, is that Paul does say, for while bodily training is of some value, what he doesn't say is bodily training doesn't matter. Just be godly. That's not what he says. He says bodily training is of some value. I read this excellent article, so I'm giving credit where credit's due, and I'm stealing from John Piper, but I read this really good article he, that was on his, on his website, Desiring God, that's called Why Movement Matters. But in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, this is when Paul is in Athens in his missionary journeys, and he's standing in this, this kind of colonnade place called the Areopagus, and he's, he's, he's giving reasons and defense for why people should believe in Jesus. And there's Jews, and there's Gentiles, and pagans, all sorts of people, and, and he's basically appealing to them, like, hey, whether you're Jewish or whether you're non-Jewish, you need to give your life to Jesus. He says in verse 28, for it's in him, talking about Jesus, we live and move, everyone say move, and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So he associates physical movement and activity with what it means to live and be human. And specifically, in Christ, he, he, he equates physical movement with what it means to, to, to serve in the kingdom of heaven. Just read the New Testament. All over the New Testament, we, t- we, we see all of these ad- admonishings that, that Paul gives about how we're to use our bodies for the glory of God. Romans chapter 12, rather, you know, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, for this is your true and proper worship. But in this article... On, on desiring God, there's, there's three reasons or, I guess, I don't know, three appeals as to why movement should be something that matters to us. When we were given bodies, just like we talked about, and we were made in the image and the likeness of God, and that obviously we know this, it doesn't mean that, you know, the, just the way that we look, that's what it means to be made in the image of God. No, it's, again, we're multifaceted beings. We have creative ability and reason and logic and Every part of what makes humans humans is, it can be directly tied back to the fact that we are the crowning piece of God's creation, made in, in his image and his likeness. But if we are created to glorify God, and he gives us physical bodies, it draws our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul writes that we are to glorify God in and with our bodies. That's in verse 20. And though Paul wasn't necessarily talking about exercise in that verse, he definitely is making the appeal that our physical bodies ought to be used for the glory of God. Paul makes this argument in Romans. This argument is made um, all throughout the book of Romans. It's made in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So if God designed our bodies, and and if he made us in his image and in his likeness, then we ought to think of our bodies as something that can be used to glorify him. Another reason why movement matters is that movement and exercise, this is obvious, but it was worth saying, movement and exercise is proven to make people happier and healthier, obviously. If you exercise, you're healthier, obviously. And there's just tons of studies out there, psychological studies, uh, mental well-being studies that, that show these consistencies, chemical processes that happen when you're, when you're moving, when you're exercising. So if God designed our bodies, and we see all the benefits whenever we act in a way that's, you know, when we, when, we, when we exercise and when we move, this shows us that there is great purpose in being fit. And the word fitness actually is a word that, that Christians should appreciate. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21, Paul writes that we are to be a vessel that is fitting for honorable use, set apart as holy, fitting to the master of the house, ready for every good work. What this verse suggests and why we should appreciate the word fitness as Christians is that there's a means to the end. We don't just exercise so that we can look good and show off and post it on Instagram and have people go like, wow, look at that guy. The, the idea that there's a means to the end. When we're able, when we're, when we're fit to do things, we have more opportunities, practically speaking, to do things that are useful for the kingdom of heaven. There are potentially more practical ways that we can be used. Please don't misunderstand me. 
I know that there are medical conditions. Um, I know that there's people who have all sorts of ailments and mental and physical incapacitations that don't, you know, that don't allow us to you know, look like Arnold Schwarzenegger 30 years ago or whatever. I mean, it would be ridiculous for me to suggest that that's the point I'm making. Paul, we just we talked about this earlier, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he had this thorn in his flesh. And most people agree that it was some sort of a physical ailment that he had. And he asked Jesus three times to remove this thorn from his flesh. And Jesus says, no, Paul, I'm not going to take this thorn from your flesh, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And he goes, so I'm going to boast of my weaknesses. So no, we're not, I'm certainly not suggesting that this is a, an overall truth that there's a perfect congruency. There's always a trend. If you're fit, you can be more useful for the kingdom of heaven. But again, if we were made in the image and likeness of God and we were given physical bodies and the whole Bible talks about how we can use our physical bodies to glorify God, it should go without saying that more, the more fit we are, the more potential use that we can serve for the kingdom of heaven. And then we have here actually crossed over into the idea of using our physical state for spiritual advancement, which is Paul's ultimate point. But here Paul is strictly discussing physical exercise, that it's of some value. Bodily training is of some value. So make, make of that whatever you want to. If that's one of your New Year's resolutions, I guess it's a good one. But when we keep reading, Paul says, but... Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This brings us, if you remember, right back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. A mindset and attitude that focuses on the things that aren't just seen, but on things that are unseen. See, I, th- I, I think that the point Timothy is making in this passage right here is to draw our attention to consider that, to focus on, on godly training. And it's appropriate that he uses the word training because it's, there's work and there's effort. It's not easy being a Christian. But he, he, I, I think the purpose of why he's saying it, physical training is of some value. We should care about things that are transient, but we should have a bigger perspective about what's going to happen and what's going to echo in eternity. Not for our own furtherment, not for our own glorification, but for the furthering of his kingdom and for, the, and for the glory of the one true God. Godliness holds value now and in eternity. The word godliness, actually the word God isn't even in it in Greek, dios, it's not in, it's not in the Greek, but it's, it suggests a, a kind of piety or reverence, actions towards the, the thing that you're, or the, or the God or the being, I guess, that you're, that you're uh, demonstrating these actions towards. And every time that this word is used in the New Testament, every single time, um, it's used to communicate the idea of how someone is acting out their piety or reverence towards God. And so it's very appropriate in that, in that light that, that it would be translated godliness or godlikeness. A concept that we talk a lot about in the church is this word sanctification. I think one of the greatest verses in, in the New Testament that talks about sanctification without saying the word sanctification is in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul writes, but continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. A lot of people look at that verse and they misuse it to think like, oh man, I got to work in order for me to be saved. No, keep reading. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. See, just as, just as Jesus read from, for us earlier from 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7 that we have this in earthen vessels and in jars of clay, it's the glory of God that's been put inside of those of us who are saved. And God's glory is inside of us by the power and work of the Holy Spirit when we believe in Jesus Christ. So that we can say things that bring glory to him. So that we can speak words that cause others to acknowledge God and give glory to him who is in heaven. And what this idea of working out your salvation is, is man, you've been given this incredible gift of salvation. What are you going to do with it? Let your conduct and your speech 
be in accordance with what the word of God says so that people can look at you and give glory to God who is in heaven. If we'll keep reading what I'll do for the rest of our time, what I'd like to do is get up to verse 12. And so I'll just talk us up there right there and we'll just, we'll finish by focusing, you know, as we, as we look to this new year and maybe some of you are still maybe trying to think of ways to, to set goals or resolutions for yourself this year. I think it's interesting how in, in this context, Paul gives us five pretty practical ways, five areas that we could focus on. So I'm just going to walk us through the rest of this up to verse 12. So while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Verse 9 is probably referring to verse 7 and 8, that bodily training is of some value, but godliness holds value not only now, but in eternity. Verse 10, for to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set in the living God. I mean, think, the, the Christian life is really hard. If any of you have been walking with Christ, like really, and I, I don't mean like you, you, you claim to be a Christian, but if any of you have actually been walking with Christ, like you've given your life to Christ, then you, you've tried to live for him for any period of time, even if it's just a few weeks, you've learned and you know that it is a very hard life to live because it goes against everything that the world throws at us. And so a question that we might ask is, why would we want to put ourselves through this? Why would we ever want to toil and strive and continue to have to suffer and endure all these things that the world is throwing at us, trying to pursue righteousness? Well, Paul gives us this reason. He gives us the reason as to why we toil and why we strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people. Everyone say all people, especially of those who believe. Now, a lot of people have taken this verse and they've used it to teach this incredibly horrible and um, heretical doctrine of universalism, oh, that everyone is going to be saved. Everyone will be saved. It says it right there. Jesus is the Savior of all people. No, he gives a caveat, especially of those who believe. I think I think what Paul is calling us to consider in this verse right here is this, that whatever subjectively the 8 billion people believe in the world, there's all sorts of religions, there's all sorts of solutions that people offer, there's all sorts of saviors that people look to, but regardless of what anyone believes, and if you're in here and you don't believe that Jesus is savior, you're wrong, and if that offends you, I'm glad, because you need Jesus, because there is objectively only one savior and that truth is true no matter who you are or what you believe. But it only means anything to those of us who believe. He's the savior, that's true to all men. But he is especially a savior to those who believe. Praise be to God that we can say this new year, Jesus Christ is my savior. And then Paul says, command, Timothy, and teach these things, Timothy. Let no one despise you for your youth. This will be the last time I do this. Everyone say youth. So this would have been someone who's like military age up to about 40. So if you're under, if you're like 40 or younger, congratulations, you're still a youth. That's great. And if you're, and if you're over 40, sorry, sorry, sorry to, to give you the bad news. <laughs> So in this context, Paul was probably about 70 and Timothy was probably about 30 to 35. I remember the last time I, ta I taught this passage was a couple years ago and I, I think I had just turned 30 and Pastor Mike, I think, had just turned 70. And in the middle of my message, I like pointed that out and I thought it would be like a fun sort of thing to mention. Everyone would laugh and get a kick out of it. And like it was dead silent. Like all of you were just stayed dead quiet. And Mike laughed, which was cool. He didn't care. All of you cared. I wish you wouldn't have, but... I just thought like, hey, it's kind of like Paul and Timothy, like me and Mike, it's kind of fun. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy. Hey, Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but be an example to them. And I, I read this in a commentary and I was like, whoa, that's such a great consideration. Paul is telling Timothy, who cares that you're younger than them? You have a responsibility to set an example for them. But here's the cool thing. 
Why in the world would Timothy need to set an example for his congregation? Because there is an expectation that everyone who is watching his example, for them to go and do it also. So as I've already made this point, everything that we read in here, whether you, know, you read verse 12 and you're like, that's for young people. No, that was for Timothy to show things as an example that was for everybody. So these things are for all of us. Whether you're 70 or whether you're 30 or somewhere on either side of that or in between, we are called to set an example. And look at, the, we're just gonna, I, I wanna challenge you guys to really look at these five things. We're finishing up our time now. Set an example in speech. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth except only what is useful for building up as fits the occasion. Paul doesn't just say, avoid bad things that you say. He says, only say things that will build people up. So that's a high standard. Setting an example and working on your speech, there's a good area of of New Year's resolutions to build people up. Your conduct. Philippians 1.27 says, Paul writes, only let your manner of life be worthy. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we act. We already talked about this, that you know, Paul is telling Timothy with his speech and with his conduct, with his teaching, with his doctrine, but also with his manner of life. Let those two things accord with each other. We need to live lives that, you know, our conduct, it looks like Jesus and our speech, it sounds like Jesus so that we look less and less and less like the old self and more and more and more like the new self who is Jesus Christ. A set an example in love. There's three different words, different contexts that the words love are used throughout the New Testament. But the word that's used here is the same word that's used most in most of the New Testament, and it's the, the type of self-sacrificial love for the sake of undeserving others. Self-sacrificial love for the sake of undeserving others. It's the word agape that we always talk about. It's the kind of love that expects nothing in return, and it's a love that's given to people who definitely don't deserve it. So that's, that's an area where we could work on some resolutions. We're to set an example in faith. Faith is doing things. I, I love this. I, I, I read this a long time ago, I think in a, in, a, in a book. But faith is doing things in response to what God says. It's a simple definition of faith. Faith is doing things in response to what God says. And that would be in, in belief and in action. James Chapter 2 says that, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things that that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also by faith itself, if it does not not have works, is dead. I think this is a a great illustration that James gives. Can you imagine if I had like a, a stack of blankets in my hand? And someone in the church, it's been cold these last few weeks, came up to me. They're like, man, Drew, our heater went out and our, our home has just been really cold and my, my kids aren't sleeping well because it's really cold and we don't know what to do. We don't have any money. Can, we, we, we just need, we need a solution. Can you help us with some warmth? And I'm like, oh, brother. And then I like go and I set the blankets down and I walk over to them and I'm like, well, Lord, I just pray that you would help them to be warmed and that you would be with them and fill them in Jesus' name. Be blessed, brother. And I just pick up my blankets and like walk away with them. Like it's a funny way to think about it, but that's literally how we practice our faith. It is so easy for us to sit in here and just sort of think about the implications of scripture. And I'll go further than that. It's it's way easier for me to stand up here and just talk about these implications of scripture before all of you than it is for me to actually go out these doors into the world, into the gym I work out at, to the place I get my hair cut, the supermarket, the people in my neighborhood. It's way easier for me to stand up here and do this than it is for me to go out there and actually live out the faith that we so passionately talk about and sing about in here. That's what we're called to do. And lastly, we're supposed to set an example in purity. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, he starts by giving um, the Beatitudes and in verse 8, he says, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And if you were here at 11, uh, we read from Psalm 98 to start our worship this morning. And 
In verse 9, the psalmist writes that the Lord is coming to judge the earth with equity. And to be an example in purity, and we could talk about all the different ways that we ought to be pure, not to be impure, sexually immoral, certainly. But I think the positive way that Jesus is calling us to consider this idea of being pure in heart is to live like we actually believe that Jesus could come back at any moment. That like at any moment, Jesus could return for us like a bridegroom for his bride, and we're called to make ourselves ready. To have an eternal perspective, to train in a way that's, that's godly, that, not just, that doesn't just only impact the things that happen right now that are transient, but, but that impact that leave, leave an impact in eternity is to, is to live in a way like we cannot wait for the day when we're going to meet our creator face to face. How beautiful, how beautiful of a blessing that we see in Matthew 5 verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those of us who know God, who seek after God, who keep a close watch on our speech and on our conduct, who strive and toil because we have set our hope on the living God, because we believe that one day we're going to see him. So church, let's live like we believe that. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that you communicate through different genres, different authors, different circumstances and contexts in order to speak directly to our hearts. Help us to be men and women who would set our hope on the living God. Help us to be men and women who would accept this trustworthy and true statement which is deserving of full acceptance we would train ourselves for godliness, that though while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Father, help us to diligently train in all of these things that we read about in your word. As we pursue to be an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity until you return or until you take us to be with you. In Jesus' name, amen.